Thank you guys so much uh, for singing to me the good news of who our God is and, and who he is to me. I need it just as much as anybody here. Go and have a seat. As you do, uh, go ahead and open up your copy of God's word to Matthew uh, chapter 6. As you do that, before we get into the text, real quick, I just wanted to let you guys know about something. We're going to add uh, to our service, really before our service each week. Uh, I've been, it's been on my heart uh, and in my prayers for a while to think about how we can build more prayer into the life of our church. Uh, and so starting next week, each, each Sunday at 9.30, whoever wants to come, uh, we're going to meet up in that music room in the corner there and just pray for what, for our service and for anything else uh, that we need to uh, beforehand. Uh, one of the things that we believe as a church is that everything we are about, everything that we want to see happen, the disciple making that God has called us to, is God's work. Uh, not ours. The church is his means, but he's the one who does the work. And so we would be fools to not um, seek him in it, uh, right? And when we gather here, we come here to receive from him. And so we're going to just gather up. Whoever can come, doesn't matter if there's one of us or 30 of us or 100 of us, we're just going to pray and ask for God's work uh, in our services each week. So it'll be from 9.30 to about 9.50. We'll cut out so we can greet everybody as they come. And that's it. Just real simple. But we hope I can see a lot of you there over the coming weeks. With that, let's get into God's Word. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are diving into Jesus' teaching on prayer. And we'll be here for a few weeks. We pick it up in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. This is the Word of the Lord. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We need it, or else you would not have given it to us. We also know that uh, we need your spirit to apply it to us, to do the work that our hearts need. And so I pray that you would soften them, give us ears that can hear, and hearts that are malleable in your hands this morning, Lord. I pray that um, my weakness would not uh, be a distraction from your word, but instead would be a way to make even more of it um, as you work through a weak vessel to care for your people. And we entrust this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys. So prayer. We're going to spend about a month on prayer and what Jesus has to teach us about it. And I want you guys to actually answer this. This is not, um, this is not rhetorical. How many of you have struggled with prayer as part of the Christian life in some way. Um, yeah, that fits. Right? That fits what I've seen over my years of being a pastor. I think it's one of the things that most Christians, everyone knows they should do it. That's never really been a thing. But there's a lot of questions and confusion about why exactly and what are we doing. It's hard it seems way harder than it should be when we're literally just talking. Sometimes you don't see the point of it. 
Sometimes it seems like there's much more productive things we could do with our time. Sometimes it feels like you're just talking into the air. Sometimes it just flat out feels like it doesn't work. Right? Does that, does that resonate? You just recognize that stuff? Yeah, this is, you're not alone. This is common. Right? Well, the good thing is Jesus doesn't leave us there. In fact, we see multiple times in Scripture, actually, it's not on the Matthew account, but when we see the prayer that Jesus is going to get to later, he, he gives it in response to a question. His disciples ask him, teach us how to pray. Right? John the Baptist's disciples ask something similar. So we're not even unique compared to the, the, the early disciples, right? They were trying to wrap their heads around this too. What is prayer? How do we do it? What's it for? All these sorts of things. It's confusing. But thankfully, we're not left to decipher it on our own. One of the things I did when I was getting ready for this is I just kind of skimmed through the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And it's really kind of stunning when you're just kind of looking for this, just the prominent role of prayer in Jesus' life. Well, he was here during his earthly ministry. Right? He taught his disciples how to pray. We see him breaking away for prayer often, even through the night sometimes. He prayed alone and he prayed in public. He prayed briefly and he prayed at length. He healed people through prayer. He engaged in spiritual warfare through prayer. Really kind of talking about it as kind of the pinnacle. There are some demons who would not be cast out apart from prayer and fasting. When he cast out the money changers from the temple, he did it. Why? Because his house was supposed to be a house of prayer. The Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him while he was praying at his baptism. He was transfigured and revealed in his glory while he was, when he was praying. The night before his death, what did he spend his time doing? He prayed for his disciples and for us, his church. When he's in the garden, after that, he pled with God while he was facing bearing the weight of sin and drinking the wrath of God for us. And then even on the cross itself, what did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed for forgiveness for his enemies. He prayed for God's care of his spirit. His last breath was a prayer. It's really kind of, when you kind of zoom out and just look at it over the broad spectrum, like it, it's wild how prominent this is in Jesus' life. If it's that prominent in Jesus' life and work here, it doesn't seem like it's something we can afford to just kind of be out to lunch on, right? Confused about, not really seeing the place it has. Because it's pretty obvious that it's important, fundamental, an essential part of our life as Christians. So, Jesus is going to help us. He's going to help us understand what prayer is, what it's for, what it does, how we should do it. All of these questions that we wrestle with and the things we struggle with, he's going to shed light on it for us. His goal is not to leave us in the dark. Prayer is not meant to be this mysterious thing that he's holding out on it and only the lucky few figure it out. But he wants you to know how to pray. He wants you to know what it is. It's a means of grace for you, right? And that's what we're going to see over the next few weeks. But the way he starts this teaching is not to tell us really how to pray as much as it is to tell us how not to pray. That's where he starts, and that's how he starts to move us in the right direction. 
is first by correcting a couple of errors. And he talks about two specific ways that prayer gets corrupted. Two specific ways that we misuse prayer, this means of grace that God has given us. The first way he addresses is that we are not to pray as a performer. We are not to pray as a performer. What does a performer do? Think in any, you know, any field, right? Sports, music, any kind of entertainment. What do they do? They, they play to a crowd, right? They are there to entertain, to please an audience, to get a reaction from those watching. That's what they're there for. That's what, how they make their money, is by eliciting this response from those who are looking on. Well, when Jesus uses the word hypocrite in this passage, that, that word hypocrite is, is the Greek word for actor, right? It's, it's the, the word to describe a performer, somebody who's playing a role, somebody who's playing a part. And let's remember what he says in verse 5. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, the actors, the performers, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. Now, prayer was a key part of Jewish piety in Jesus' day. Really, the, the three things he talks about here, uh, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting, those three things were kind of tied together as kind of marks of, of true religion uh, for the Jews at this point. And the early church really kind of carried this forward. And what Jesus here is not criticizing prayer by any means, but he's criticizing the impulse to use prayer as a means to the wrong end. Right. What the hypocrites were doing is that they were using prayer to burnish their own reputations, to project self-righteousness. When he says they, they love, he doesn't say they love to pray. They love to play, pray in these particular places, right? They love to pray specifically in the front center of the synagogue, Right, where everybody can see, where everybody can notice them in public view. Right? Or they like to stop in the busiest area of the street, the corners, as if they're so piously overcome by this need to pray that they have to stop that instant. They can't even finish walking where they're going. They just have to do it right now. It just so happens to be where everybody's walking by and can see and notice them. They're not compelled because they love God or because they love to pray, but because they love to be seen as a person who loves God and loves to pray. See, it's not the fear, it's not the love of God that compels prayer's performance, it's the fear of man. It's not the love of God, it is the fear of man that drives this kind of prayer. It uses prayer as a spotlight to focus attention on yourself. To say, look at me, think about me this way. This is who I am. This is who I want you to see me as. Prayer is meant to be worship. And what this kind of prayer, performative prayer, what it does is it shifts the object of worship from God to yourself. It says, think much of me. Look at me. Look at how holy I am. Look at how pious I am. Look at how devout I am. It's a great example of this from Luke 18. It's a parable that Jesus told. He says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, man, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a picture-perfect model of exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? The Pharisee rolls in to the temple, and he goes to the most prominent place and stands up where everybody can see him, and then he prays about what? His own goodness, right? This is like the, the most obvious straw man example of, of this that you can be. But this is what, this is true. We do this, right? It may not look this explicit, but we do this kind of thing, right? The Pharisee's prayer was not shaped by who God is. It was shaped by the crowd looking on and by his insecure striving to be seen by them a certain way. All right, whereas the tax collector, he didn't even feel worthy to be there. He stood far off. Right? He just tried to stay out of the limelight and cried out his need for the Lord. We can't look at that picture of the Pharisee and then just kind of like ignore this. We're like, well, I would never do that, obviously. That guy's ridiculous. It may not look quite like that, but we are tempted to do this sort of thing all the time. The approval of people, the approval of man is one of the closest counterfeits for what we actually need, which is righteousness from God, right? That's one of the ways we chase to fill that void. Remind me a little bit of the movie Gladiator, which is very old now, right? But in Gladiator, there's this gladiator named Maximus, and, and he can fight, but his, the guy who's training him tells him that if he ever wants to win his freedom, he can't just win the fights. He has to win the crowd. He has to learn how to perform. He has to learn how to do, not just win the fights, but do it in such a way that he wins the crowd and then the crowd can force the emperor's hand. Right? Well, we subtly do something similar, right? We, we may know better than this, but there's this longing us to, to look to the, the approval of people as a placeholder for what we actually need from God. And the approval of people feels like freedom. Right? If they would just like me, if they would just see me this certain way, that feels like freedom. But it is not freedom. It's bondage. It's slavery. And so when we do this, while our words may be petitioning God, we're not seeking him. We're seeking them. We're seeking the people around us. Prayer is made to humble us. Instead, it is turned into a tool to exalt us in the eyes of those watching so who are we thinking of when we pray? Right? Who are our words designed to fit? Who are they designed for? Are they shaped for those around us or are they shaped for him? Are we concerned with what people think of when we pray, the words we use, the length of our prayers, if we're emotional enough, if we hit the right tone in the right place? We go on and on and on. Is that what we're worried about? Or our prayers shaped by who God is. 
You know, it's interesting, the same underlying drive and motivation of the fear of man can also drive us not to pray, right? So this is a performative frame we can do to try to cultivate a reputation, but it can also cause us to, to pull back from praying. In Jesus' time and place, looking devout in Israel, generally that served you well, right? It's, it was a religious culture. To look devout was looked well upon. But that's not always the case. And certainly in our world, seem, things seem to be trending in the opposite direction, where to, to be one who prays does not look like something honorable, but looks like something foolish and silly. Right? And, and we're in that kind of environment, we're in that kind of culture, the fear of man, rather than calling, calling us to kind of pray performatively, it can do the other thing. Just kind of pull back away from prayer at all. We, don't, we want to be seen as one who doesn't pray, even though we would never say that. Right? Sometimes this happens even within the church. Right? We don't feel like we don't have the right words. Right? And if we're in, our, we're in our grace group or we're in some little group, we don't want to talk because we're afraid of what people might think of how we sound. Because it doesn't sound right or something like that. That's the fear of people driving and shaking our prayers or our non-prayers. But this is what can also happen in the world. Right? When you're around people who think praying is ridiculous, who think it's silly. Right? Do you want to, do, do you want to pray in front of them? No, there's a hesitancy, right? There's this desire. We want people's approval. We just do. It's deep in our flesh. So the same drive can move us the other way. It's the same root. And the bottom line is, the whole point about what Jesus is saying about praying in secret, it's not the fact that you can never pray where people see you. We're called to pray corporately. Jesus prays in public regularly. The point is, who are you praying for? When you pray in secret, nobody else, there's nobody else to pray for except for the Lord. So you're kind of shielded from all those things. And what he's saying is, pray like that everywhere. Right? God is the one who should be shaping your prayers wherever you are. If you're by yourself or if you're in a crowd, it doesn't matter. He is the one who shapes our prayers. I think Daniel is a great example of this. We go back to our Old Testament, particularly as somebody who did this in a culture that was looked down on prayer, more like ours. He's in exile in Babylon, and some of the king's advisors are jealous of Daniel because uh, he's been uh, promoted quite a bit. God's blessed him and allowed him to serve the foreign kings well. And they're jealous of that. So they convince King Darius to pass a law banning all prayer except to him. And in the moment, he doesn't think about Daniel, who he loves and cares a lot about, and the fact that Daniel prays to his God. Until after he signs this. And then when he signs this into law, it's permanent. He can't rescind it. And so Daniel finds out that this has been passed. And in Daniel 6.10, this is what he did. Says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Right? Everything changed legally about the dynamics with prayer in, in Babylon with the signing of that law. But Daniel didn't tailor, tailor his prayer around what was approved or disapproved by those around him, legally or socially. Right? He continued to do what he always did. He couldn't pray at the temple, so he opened his windows and prayed towards the temple, longing for the return that God had promised. And he just continued to do it the same way he always did. Because God shaped his prayers. Not the government, not the people around him. 
His prayers were shaped by the love of God, not by the fear of man. That's really the bottom line here. Our prayer, when it's shaped by and it's seeking the approval of men, is actually not worship, it's now idolatry. It's what it's become. Our prayers are meant to be shaped by him and him alone, whether we are by ourselves or we're worth a crowd. One of the things that I drove this home to me was when I was in the military before I became a pastor, one of my roles was as a staff officer. And that meant I had to do briefings for uh, commanders frequently. And so did several other staff people. It was just part of the regular deal. Um, and so I'd brief them on what, what I was seeing in my section and give them advice on how we should act and, and argue for the best course of action based on what I was seeing. But one of the things that I learned very, very early on in that was that in that room full of people, the only person I was talking to was my commander. Nobody else actually mattered. I looked at him and only him. I talked to him. I made arguments that I thought would persuade him and only him. Well, why? It wasn't because I had anything against any of my peers that were there with me. But at the end of the day, the only one in that room that mattered for what we were doing was that commander. He was the one who was going to make the call. He's the only, I, I could fail to persuade everybody else. If I persuaded him, then I would win. The whole engagement, that whole time was built around him, even in a room full of people. That's what prayer is like. Our prayer is meant to be built and shaped around the character of God, who he is, what he loves and desires from us. It is meant to seek him and to be designed in a way that aligns with him. It's meant to be shaped by him, who he is and what he wants. Now, the scary part about this whole thing, as you go on, is that if you do this performative prayer, right, if you do pray, not shaped by God, but to win the approval of others, you might just get what you aim for. Jesus says they actually do. They got their reward. The Pharisees, who he's primarily talking about here, you know what? They were thought of really well in Israel, generally. They were seen as really holy. They got what they were after. So the scary thing about having prayer corrupted in this way is that you could actually get what you want. Some people are really good at this game, really good at portraying themselves a certain way, really good at working the crowd to a desired effect. But in doing so, if you don't find freedom, right? It, it's, it's a prison. It, it feels like success. It feels like you're winning. You're seen this way. But it's such a loss, right? You've now enslaved yourself to the fickle opinions of the crowd. And when you're enslaved to the crowd, you're never safe. You want to be insecure? Chase approval by your self-righteousness. Best way to be insecure that ever existed. You will never be safe. You will never be safe. And not only that, it, it enslaves you to sin. Sin is always running a con. Sin can offer nothing good. All it can do is lie and delude and deceive. Always. And here, in this, this corruption of prayer, the very things 
you are using to feel righteous are sinful, right? It's so deceptive and subtle. There's so many things on the outside that look good and look pious and everything, but it is absolutely the opposite of it. It is sin at its heart. It's pride and arrogance and self-righteousness dressed up as holiness. So dangerous. When we do this, we've confused idolatry for true worship. And we've misconstrued, misconstrued people's opinions of us as our love of God. And in gaining that reward, right, in gaining that favor of people, and in managing to project this and get them to see you that way, we lose because we've traded what is priceless for fleeting applause. We, we trade we trade our birthright for stew, the way Esau did, right? We're seeking what's vain in expense for what is invaluable. In seeking to look righteousness, we move ourselves further away from it than we ever were. So that's performative prayer, right? We're using prayer, something that is meant to be a connection with God as a way of manipulating and gaining approval from people. But that's not the only way our prayer can be corrupted. Right? Jesus talks about another way that this happens. Right? So when we don't pray like performers, when we're not doing that, sometimes we're praying like pagans. Sometimes we're praying like pagans instead. Now, where the hypocrite's prayer was designed to manipulate people, right, to get a certain effect from the crowd, get something you want out of them, pagan prayers were designed to manipulate the gods. Pagan prayers were designed to manipulate the gods. Let's pick back up in Matthew 6, verses 7 to 8. Here we read this. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, the prayers of the Gentiles, these, these pagan prayers, they were shaped by the nature of their gods. Right? They were shaped by what their gods are like. The same way I'm arguing that Christian prayer should be shaped by who our God is. Well, pagans had something right. Their prayers were shaped by their gods. Problem is, their gods aren't gods. And their gods are definitely not like our God. Right? The pagan gods were fickle. They changed. You never knew what you were getting with them. You'd wake up on a bad morning and they'd do something crazy. Right? Pagan gods were fickle. They changed. Pagan gods needed things from people. Right? They were not all self-sufficient. People could bring them things that they wanted and needed and would add something to them, right? Pagan gods were also, had to react to things as they happened. They were, not, they were powerful, but they weren't sovereign. They didn't know everything that was going to happen. They weren't in control of all things. So they had to react. They had to respond. They had to adjust on the fly. So all these characteristics about the pagan gods led to a corresponding view of prayer. If you have gods like that, you know what you can do? You can manipulate them. Right? You can find a carrot or a stick, right? You can find levers to pull to get what you want out of them. If they change, if they need things, if they have to react, you can do that. And so pagan prayer was shaped accordingly. In a lot of ways, pagan prayers, they, they saw them very similar to, to kind of like magic incantations, right? You said the right words in the right way with enough fervor, and you just pull the right combination of things, you manage to get the God on your side, right? And you get what you want out of him. It's like trying to crack a code, 
right? Or like going to the, the vending machine and putting the dollar in and then, you know, but the, the letters and numbers aren't on the things. So you have to, you know, try to guess and figure out which is the right one. Pagan prayer was about pulling the right levers to get what you want, which meant a lot of the, the right words, right? Really formulaic, mechanical stuff. Lots of gibberish, nonsense, right? Instead of coherent speech, this gibberish stuff was, was supposedly more spiritual than words that you could actually understand. Lots of emotion, right? The more worked up you get, the more likely the gods will be to pay attention. Lots of time, you know? The more time you spend, the more serious you are. Lots of bargaining. God, God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. Deal making. Lots of sacrifices. I'll give up this if you'll only do this for me. Like that is the nature of pagan prayer. Right? You're doing all this stuff. Your prayer is designed to get the gods to do what you want. That's what it is. Right? And if you have a God like this, if you have a God that you can manipulate to get things out of, then it makes sense. But that is not our God. So many ways we go wrong is when we have a wrong understanding of who God is and when we see him too much like us. The pagan gods were like us. All things we say about them are, that's, that's what we're like. They're just super-powered versions of us. Our God is completely unlike us. He is totally unique from who we are. He is not the great vending machine in the sky. Our God is immutable. He does not change. He has never changed. He never will change. Our God is ase. Right? That is a Latin word that means that he is independent from us. He needs nothing from us. There's nothing that we add to who he is. He is perfectly satisfied, complete, and content in who he is. He needs nothing from us. And our God knows all and is sovereign over all. He never reacts. He never adjusts. There's never a plan B. He's never just to figure anything out on the fly. If that's who God is, he can't be manipulated. He can't be exploited. There's no lever you can pull to get leverage on this God and to make him do what you want him to do. Can't be done. There's no weakness. There's no vulnerability to exploit. So this kind of prayer does not make any sense if you have a God like our God. Psalm 115.3, we read this at the beginning of our service. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does what he does because of who he is and what he wants, not because of any manipulation or control or extortion by any of his creatures. So when we pray as Christians, when we pray to this God, you're not telling God things that he doesn't know. Right? He knows your heart better than you can express it in words. You're not giving him something that he lacks to incentivize him to do what you want. He lacks nothing. There's nothing you can give to him that would add to him in any way. You are not convincing him to be good to you. You are not convincing him to be good to you. Because his goodness to us is not a response to anything in us. It flows from who he is. He is good to us because he is good not because there are things in us that are attractive. 
So performative prayer, on the one hand, uses God as a prop to gain people's approval, while pagan prayer uses prayer to try to extract from God things that we want. They're different, but they share a common thread. They both use God as a means to an end. They both use God as a means to an end. Whether that end is people's approval or getting whatever it is you want out of him, he's just the pathway to get there. And that's the fundamental flaw. Because God is not the means to the end. God is the end. God is the point. God is is the thing that we want more than anything else. Prayer is the means to God. (laughs) It's completely inverted in these things. Prayer is not about getting more out of God, but in seeking God himself. That's what Christian prayer is. That's what Christian prayer is. So we don't pray as a performer. We don't pray as a pagan. We pray as a child. We pray as a child. We do not need to pray for men's approval because we already have approval and affection and a far better one than any person can ever give you. Scripture tells us that when we are united to Christ by grace through faith, we are in him, right? Which means everything that is his is now ours. In Christ, we are adopted as God's children, God's sons. We are co-heirs with Jesus himself. John 1 says this, But to all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Then Romans 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Right? You, when you are doing that performative prayer, you are trying to get approval out of people, right? You're trying to find an identity. I'm this righteous person. Everybody knows I'm this righteous person. They see me as this righteous person. You don't need that. You have something so much better. You don't have to look righteous and project self-righteousness. You have been given true, actual righteousness. You've been clothed in the true righteousness of Jesus. And because you have, you have the approval and the affection, not just of somebody else like you, but of the God of the universe. When God said at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now that you are in Christ, those words apply to you. The God of the universe sees you that way. You are his beloved child in whom he has well pleased, in whom he is well pleased. What do you need from them? What are you looking for that you don't already have? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing they can give you that you have not received abundantly more in Christ. Remember. Remember who you are. Remember who you have been made in him. And because of that, because he's our flawless father, right? We don't have to extract good from him. We don't have to leverage good out of him. This can sometimes be hard to believe, right? Because 
a lot of times our earthly fathers shape the way that we view God. And sometimes that contributes to us seeing God as a superpowered version of us. Because our fathers fail. They don't know everything. They, can't always, they don't always have the power to do what they like. But God is a perfect father. He's a perfect, flawless, faultless father. He knows what is truly good for you. Perfectly knows what is truly good for you. He doesn't just know that. He also has the power to give it to you. He is not limited in any way. He has no limitations in terms of what he can do on your behalf. He knows what's good for you. He has the power to deliver it, and he is steadfast and unmoving in his good purposes towards you in Christ. His motive towards you is always good. He knows the exact way to do good towards you, and he has the power to do it. Always. That is never not true. Romans 8, 31 to 32 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know how you know all those things are true about your heavenly father? Because he already gave you the most priceless, invaluable thing he ever did. He gave his own son for you. If he has done that, why would you ever think he would withhold? Why would you ever think you'd have to extract and draw something? Like he did that when you hated him, when you despised him, when you were his enemy, when you were in rebellion to him, he did that. And now you're his beloved child, and you think he is going to do less for you now? You think he cares less for you? You think he will give less of himself for you? To the point where you need to carry it and stick him into getting something you need? No. It's true that our God cannot be manipulated, but it's also true that you don't have any need to manipulate him. He, you are his child, and he is a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his kids, and he never will fail to do that. What we try to get from others, he has already given us better. And what we try to get out of him he freely gives. And we see this. When we see who God is, this starts to move us from how not to pray to how we get to pray as his children. See, a father can take care of his kids. He can provide what they need, food, clothing, shelter. Right? He may even have connections to be able to help get them ahead in the world. A father can do all those things. But so can somebody else. Right? Like, that stuff's good and it's important, but somebody else could do that. But somebody else can't be dad. The most precious thing about having a heavenly father is not the gifts that he gives, but it's that he's made us his, that he has set his affection on you, that he loves you, that at the cost of his own son, He wants to commune with you forever. Being his, to have him in that way, that is, that is the pinnacle. There is nothing that comes remotely close to that. And that's what prayer is about. That's what Christian prayer is about. 
Prayer is not about getting something we need from him. It's about participating in what he has already given us in Christ. That's what Christian prayer is. And we're going to explore that as we get into the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus teaches us, how, well, how do we actually pray like that? And if that's who we are, if we are these children of God and we get to pray, participating in what he has made us in Christ, what does that look like? What do we say? What do we talk to him about? That's what we're going to do in the coming weeks. But this is the foundation, right? We do not need to pray to project an image, to get something out of the person sitting next to you. Right? If anything, we want to be like the tax collector. Right? And we, we will hear our prayers. We want them to get the idea of that we are humble. Right? We, we want, that's what our prayers should evoke is humility so that they see the greatness of God, not a high view of us. Right? And our prayers are not to extract something from God, the God who already loves us and has given us his son and will give us all good things. It's to participate in what we already have in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this corrective. I know I have, part of, I've corrupted prayer in both of these ways so many times. And you have been so kind and gracious to call me back, to call me to repentance, and to remind me of who you are and who I am in you. And what the goodness that I am giving up when I go that way, Lord. And so I pray that you do that with all of us. I pray that you would expose the sin in our hearts. This stuff is subtle, it's so subtle. I pray that you would give us eyes to see that your spirit would do the work of convicting and exposing sin in us, that we might confess and repent. Lord, and then that you would ground us in who you've made us in Christ, that you would not let us forget who you are and who we are in you. And that that would be foundation for us to come before you in love and joy as your beloved children as we ought. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.